Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. And last week we talked about the parable of the sower and the seed, how the sower represents those who are sharing the word of God. The seed represents the word of God, the Bible, and the soil represents the hearts of the people who hear God's word. Some people reject it. Some believe for a while, and then the hardships of life push them away. Some believe for a while, then the pursuits of what the world has to offer replaces what God has to offer. And then there's those of us who hear God's word and allow it to change our lives for the better. So now we're going to pick it up at chapter 4, verse 21, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that your word speaks truth to us, that the Holy Spirit allows it to sink into our spirit, and let it not just be head knowledge, but allow it to really affect our spirit and our heart. When we read your word, help us to know that it's your love letter written to each one of us individually. Our name is on this letter. Help it to minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 4, verse 21, and says, Then Jesus asked them, Would anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket or under a bed to shut out the light? Of course not. The lamp is placed on a stand where its light will shine. Now, how many of you know what a hurricane lamp is? hurricane lamp is you have the oil on the bottom and the wick coming up. Well, that's kind of how it was in the day. They placed oil in the small dish and they had a wick that came up from the small dish and that, that lit their area. And for the light to light, it drew, it drew oil from the bottom. And it uses up the oil that's put in the dish and the dish has to keep being refilled with oil to make it light. If it doesn't get refilled, what happens? The light goes out. Now, the wick can't produce light on its own. It has to have the oil. And we, like the apostles, we are called to be, what? The light of the world. Matthew's account includes in this, the same story, Matthew's account includes this line. It says, 514, you are the light of the world, like a city on a mountain glowing for the, in the night for all to see. If we are supposed to be God's light, we can only be effective as we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the symbol of oil, filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we take in what God gives us before we try to shine. How many of you are like runners or exercisers? You, you go to the gym, that kind of thing. Do you warm up before you run? Now, I'm not either of those, so I don't know. But I imagine that before you run, you have to warm up and stretch your muscles. What happens if you don't? It doesn't work out too well for you, right? You begin to hurt. You're, you're not ready for it. Well, in order for God to use us, we have to be taking in and exercise what God already is using in us. We need to prepare for that. And we need to live like Christ and be ready for when God wants to use us. Like we're already prayed up, we're already read up. We are ready for God to use us. And when God does, he will share his truth through you to other people. And what's going to happen, if you don't constantly learn and you can't continue to keep growing, you're going to fail at that particular thing. Now, I have a good buddy of mine that he runs marathons back home, and he, he's just nuts. He runs in all kinds of weather. It can be freezing cold. It can be, you know, miserable. And he's running you know, miles and 20 and 30 miles a day. I just tell him he's crazy, but... He loves the Lord and he, he does that. But I can tell you if he stops doing it for a period of time, 
He's not going to be able to pick it back up the way when he left it. And if we don't keep constantly learning and constantly growing, we're going to lose what it is we have. Mark 4.22 goes on and says, Everything that is now hidden or secret will eventually be brought to light. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. And be sure to pay attention to what you hear. The more you do this, the more you'll understand, and even more besides. To those who are open to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But to those who are not listening, even what they have will be taken away from them. The more we hear about God's word, the more we study God's word, the better we're going to be able to be the light to the people that need us. And the moment we stop studying, or the moment we think we know it all, what's going to happen? Whatever knowledge you have at that point is going to disappear. And I can attest to that. I, when I was in high school, I took Russian for three years, the language Russian, three years. I took it for four years when I was in college. That was a lot of years ago. And because I didn't keep studying and keep learning, I know three words. Because I didn't keep up on it. You may study a lot of God's word today, but if you stop studying, the Bible tells you what you have is going to disappear. Your knowledge of that is going to go away. That verse tells us to pay attention to what you hear. Not every teacher or preacher is going to tell you the truth or is going to teach you the Bible correctly. We need to be discerning about, about what we let into our minds. Luke's account of the parable tells us this. Therefore, carefully consider how you listen. So the first thing is what you're listening to. Are you listening to good teaching? Are you listening to God's word taught right? Are you reading God's word for yourself? The second one is, how are you listening? When you listen to a, a, a teacher or a preacher, are you listening with a discerning ear? Or are you listening with a critical ear? Sometimes our attitudes when we listen to teaching affects how we receive the message. How many of you, not in this church, but in, you know people that have walked into other churches with a bad attitude? Something didn't go right. You lost an hour of sleep last night. It was just a bad night. And you walk in and you're already in a grumpy mood. Sometimes the preaching is not going to sink in because you've already had an attitude. The Bible says, be careful how you listen. Maybe you don't like a particular verse in the Bible or a chapter or a book of the Bible. You just don't like it. You just ignore that book for whatever reason and you don't like it. So when you hear God's truth about that chapter, book, verse, you don't listen to it. I'll give you a good example. Tithing is a good example. If I were to teach on tithing, which I've done in the past, some people will think that all preachers, all they do is ever ask for money. I'm not listening. How are you listening to that? You already have a negative attitude because you don't like that particular verse or that particular truth. But the problem is when that happens, you miss out on the blessings that come from the truth. The truth is that God honors your trust when you tithe. And everyone who does that can attest to you in testimonies that God makes up more than what you give. And often in ways that you don't realize it.
I have a car that has 150,000 miles on it already. And praise God, I've had very minimal repairs on it. That's a blessing. I've had cars in the past that it's cost me money and money and money and money to keep it running. You may not get a check in the mail, but God, I promise you, 90% goes further than 100%. And people who tithe will tell you the same thing. But if you don't like to hear that, you're not going to listen to it and you're going to miss out on what God wants to bless you with. When you tithe, what happens is you begin to cease to worry about finances because God promised to make it up to you. I, I've shared this before. When we first got married or when I first got saved, and we were struggling, you know, money-wise, and I'm, try, I'm trying to find a verse in the Bible that tells me I don't have to tithe. How many have done that? I'm trying to find a verse to, it's called proof texting. You try to find one verse that you can pull out of context and say, that verse is for me. Well, I, could, I couldn't find one. And I realized that at that point, that's where faith comes in. Do I really believe what God's word tells me? Or do I not? And sometimes, like, like Peter, Peter actually had to step out of the boat onto the water before he actually walked on the water. And sometimes we, sometimes we got to step out and do what God tells us to do, trusting that God's going to meet us where we are. Matthew 6.31 says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you don't listen to what God's word says or you have a critical ear, you're not going to receive the blessings that God has for you at that moment. Mark's, uh, Mark's gospel goes on in verse 25, says, But to those who are not listening, even what they have will be taken away from them. Failing to live by the truth that we already know, we cause God to not give us any more information. Why would God show you deeper things if you're not listening to the things that you already know? If we don't use what we know, as I mentioned before, it's going to fade away. God gives you enough information to take the first step. And once you take the first step, then God says, okay, here's the next step you need to take. But if you don't take the first one, the second one's not going to come around. That's how your faith is built, one little bit at a time. When you, I've discovered this, and I'm sure a lot of you have. The minute you come to faith, you, know, you trust Jesus, you're saved, you repent of your sins, and all of a sudden, God seems to answer every prayer right away. As you get older, those answers don't come quite as fast. Think of it this way. Your baby, when they're, when they're hungry, you feed them as soon as they're hungry. As soon as they need change, you change, you feed them. Well, when they're 10, you know, when they're hungry, they can wait till dinner. Or they can wait till the next thing. You know you're not going to have a snack before dinner. You're not as instant to meet their needs. As they get older, why? Because you want them to trust you and have faith. As a new Christian, God will do that stuff for you to get your, your faith and trust built up. But as time goes on, he's going to hold those back and say, okay, how do you trust me? To wait. I'll get it to you, but I want you to trust me to wait. We used to tell our kids when they would ask for things in the store, if you want an answer now, it's no. But if you can wait, 
It might be yes. And they hated that. They wanted the instant answer to be yes. We said, no, we want you to wait. If you have patience to wait, we might actually say yes to that request. 2 Peter 3.17 says, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Like one commentary said it this way, the, risky, the risk of losing one's relationship with God or becoming unfaithful or outright rebellious against him increases in direct proportion to one's spiritual neglect and decline. In other words, the less you read, the less you pray, the less you study, the, the bigger the chance that you're going to walk away from God. Mark goes on in verse 26. He says, Jesus also said, here's another illustration of what the kingdom of God is like. A farmer planted seeds in a field, and then he went on, it, on with his other activities. As the days went by, the seeds sprouted and grew without the farmer's help because the earth produced crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle. Now, being in the same vein as the sower and the seed, this is a different parable, but again, using the, that same analogy. Our job, Christian's job, is to plant the seed. Our job is to share what Jesus did for me. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a scholar. All you have to do is share what God did for you. That's simple. That's a testimony. The Bible says we all have one. It could be a powerful one. It could be a little one. But everyone is a testimony, and that testimony will minister to someone as much as God's word at the beginning because you're telling them specifically what God did for you. Once we plant that seed, what happens? We go about our daily business. We move on. And we trust God to make that seed grow in that person's heart. If we don't plant it, it won't grow. But once we plant it, our job is done. God will make that seed grow in their heart. Now, it may require us talking to them many times, but God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who changes their heart. I'm not going to change anybody's heart. Nobody's going to change another person's heart. God is the one who can change the heart. Verse 27 says, As the days went by, the seed sprouted and grew within the farmers without the farmer's help. Because the earth produced its crops on its own. In other words, okay, we as a farmer, we've been obedient, we planted the seed. What happens after that is out of our control. We've been faithful to do what God asked us to do. If we planted the seed on good soil, we will begin to see signs of the person responding to the, to the gospel. They will be interested. They want to talk about it. Verse 28 says, first a leaf blade pushes through. Then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. I like the New Living Translation. It says, as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle. When God's timing is right, he'll return in the rapture to take his church and for judgment to begin in the tribulation. So he's talking about people getting saved before that happens. Our job is to plant the seed. Our job is to minister to people. 
Our job is to pray for that person that God changes their heart. The farmer didn't do anything other than plant the seed. The Bible says the earth did, it, it did its thing. God's going to do his thing in their life. God is going to get them curious. God is going to get them interested. And if it's good soil, they're going to continue to be interested in it. And God will be the one who saves them. And the Bible also talks about, I don't have the notes here, but what God does, only God can do. What it seems impossible for us, the Bible says, is very possible with God. Nothing is too hard for God. So that person you think will never come to know Christ, the Bible says that's, that's, not, that's not hard for God. This last sentence we just read is a reference to Joel's word about judgment. Joel 3.13 says, Now let the sickle do its work, for the harvest is right. Come tread the winepress because it's full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Our job is not worry about what's coming, other than the fact that we need to warn other people about what's coming. If you knew something was coming that was bad and you didn't warn anybody, how would you feel? In fact, Ezekiel talks about that. He says, look, if you share the gospel with someone and they don't accept it, it's their fault. However, if you don't share it, it's your fault. So our job is to make sure people understand that God loves them. God, man, I, I tell you, I've been watching The Chosen. Really, it's third season is really good. And the, the one thing, I, I watched it last night, the one thing I noticed about it is a lot of things in the Bible that we read, we, we kind of see them as a sterile thing. You heard about the woman with the issue of blood. Everybody knows that story, right? And that's about all you know, other than she spent all of her money on doctors and she's had it for 12 years. But you don't get into the emotion of the person who has that problem. And last night's episode, they, they showed the anguish that was in this lady's life. You know, it was probably true. And how much she suffered, she would have been unclean in the Jewish laws and she was exiled because of it. You get to see how God really loves the person. More than just the healing. How God ministers to the person and cares about the person. That's how we're supposed to be with other people. That we care about them. The Bible says, don't pretend to love people, really love them. So when we share the gospel with someone, it's not to get another notch on the belt. It's because we really care about the person that we're talking to. And we really want them to not only enjoy this life and have the blessings this life, we want them to be prepared for the next life. Now we come to the last parable about, the, about seed being sown in Mark 30, 430. It says, Jesus asked them, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? Is it like a tiny mustard seed? Though this is one of the smallest of seeds, it grows to become one of the largest of plants with long branches whose birds can come and find shelter. He's encouraging the disciples. He's saying to them that the number of followers that he has right now is small. He's only got 12 and the crew that are with him. However, it's going to continue 
to grow from the smallest of fellowships is going to come a great fellowship. The mustard seed, which is small, but not the smallest seed, is symbolic of their ministry at that particular point. Now, the farmers at that time would be familiar with that analogy, and they would be familiar with the size of the tree that was going to grow from that seed. Again, Jesus using an analogy or an example that they would understand. The Bible says, don't despise small beginnings. If God's in it, God's going to use it. And the size isn't the important thing. It matters in the number of people that we reach for Christ, but the, the importance is the power of the Holy Spirit in that congregation, in that number. Jesus, we said before, Jesus had a multitude of people following him. They only wanted the miracles. They only wanted the blessings and the healings. They weren't really interested in their forgiveness of sin. They didn't realize that they had sin in their life that needed to be repented of and forgiven. But this small group did. And Jesus is saying, from this small group, it's going to expand. Look at where we're at today, how many millions of people come to know Christ. It's going to expand. Now there's debate as to what the birds and shelter mean. The two schools of thought are either they have no significance, which was part of the story, or whether the birds represent the Gentiles who would later come to faith. Or if it continues in the same vein as the sower and the seed might indicate, that many will come to be people of faith and find shelter. And later, other things will draw them away. That seems to jive more in context with all the other parables he said here. A lot of people are going to come under the shelter. They're going to come into the church. They're going to come into fellowship with Christ. But as the first three examples of the seed are the hearts, some don't believe, some come for a while and leave, some come for a while and chase other things. So you're going to have people in the fellowship who don't stay in the fellowship. The examples we had in the Bible are Ananias and Sapphira. They were in the church, but they weren't really a part of it. They were, they were more interested in what other people thought of them in their giving. Judas was part of the 12, but in the end, he wasn't. And then we have another Simon in the Bible in Acts chapter 8, thir uh, verse 13 says, then Simon himself believed and was baptized. So he's, he's, our, he's a believer. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the great miracles and signs that Philip performed. You skip to verse 18. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles, when the apostles placed their hands upon people's heads, he offered money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money perish with you for thinking that God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this, for your heart is not right before God. Turn from your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you of your evil thoughts. For I can see that you're full of bitterness and held captive by sin. Bottom line, don't let something that's small that's beginning in your life discourage you from serving the Lord. A lot of times it takes a great number of years for God to manifest something. But the Bible says be of good cheer. God is still doing it. 
Zechariah 4.10, the one I quoted before, it says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Small beginnings. What God's doing here. What God's doing in Asbury. What God's doing in, in Valley Forge and in Texas A&M. The Lord rejoices, what? To see the work begin. You got to begin it. Got to step out in faith and trust God that he's going to meet the need. And he's going to fill this place. And when we pray, on, we meet together every other Thursday and we pray for things for God to do. That's the work beginning. And the Lord is pleased to see the work beginning. And he says, don't worry about how small it is at the beginning. Just start it. Just start it. I'll let it grow. Mark 4.33 goes on and says, he used many such stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they were able to understand. In fact, his public te- in his public teaching, he taught them only with parables, but afterwards, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained the meaning to them. Now, the New Living Translation uses the, the word stories and illustrations. That's more, probably a more accurate than what the NIV says. The NIV says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable because the word parable would include riddles and uh, similitudes, similitudes and pro- uh, proverbial statements all designed to get a, a singular truth acro- uh, across. He tried to teach them a truth be- without becoming very blunt and confrontational with the truth. Our pulpit back home used to say, say it in love, that no one could see but the guy was preaching. Because there's a lot of times you have truth to say, and it matters how you say it. Now I have a little story here, if I can remember it right. I wrote it down because it's one of these urban legend things. It goes like this. A man is watching his friend's cat while he's away. Gil, I was watching your cat. The friend returned and the man said, hey man, your cat's dead. The friend said, well, that was kind of harsh. Why didn't you break that news to me a little easier? And the guy said, well, how do I do that, man? What do I say? He says, well, you could say that while, you were, while I was away, the cat was very nice. He was feeling very comfortable. And while he was here with me, he was being very frisky. And one day he walked out on the roof and accidentally fell off and he got hurt, and he, and he died. That would ease the blunt truth. God says, okay, I'll remember that next time. And then Fred said, well, how's my mom doing? The man says, well, while you're away, your mom is very nice. She was feeling very comfortable with me while she was here. But while she was being frisky, see the difference in how you say something? You can say it, without being blunt about it. And Jesus says the same thing. The crowds weren't getting, they weren't ready for the blunt truth. So he's saying it in a way that they would understand and try to get through it to their, like we said before, an emotional word picture, they would understand the truth in their heart before they got it in their head. But even the disciples had a hard time understanding, but Jesus did explain to them, his 12, what he meant. Verse 33 says, but afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained the meaning to them. You know, it's easy as Christians to be harsh with truth. 
Our job is to say truth, but to say it in a way that helps people to receive it. You want people to understand the truth, but you want to say it in a way that they don't put up their defenses to first automatically ignore what you're going to say because you're saying truth. When you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to tell you the truth. And you've heard the uh, expression of bedside manner. You want the doctor to say something that is hard to hear in a way that comforts you when he's saying it. Jesus wants us to be able to speak truth to people in a way that comforts them while we're saying the truth. Now the next story he's talking about is calming the storm. Some commentaries call these nature miracles. If Jesus was really who he said he was, this type of miracle shouldn't shock us. You know, we stop the weather. But this type of miracle presents a greater problem to us modern people. Now, we've seen miracles of healing with our own eyes. Maybe not as spectacular as when Jesus did it. But there are miracles nonetheless. And even in Jesus' day, someone with authority and power, that type of authority and power was unheard of. Remember we said a couple weeks ago that the people that were listening said, hey, he teaches like someone who has authority and power. Even in Jesus' day and in the Bible, people were able to recreate Jesus' miracles. Pharaoh's men recreated Moses' miracles. But in the end, the miracles couldn't get rid of the blood and the water. The miracles that they had did not have control over nature. In Revelation, you're going to talk about the Antichrist being able to do false miracles. But again, not miracles over nature. Even today, have you ever heard of someone praying and actually stopping a hurricane? Not moving it, stopping it. Dead in its tracks. Not happened. Not to my knowledge. Jesus did it instantly. Stop the storm. Mark 4.35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. So this is the same day as when he told the, the kingdom parable. So he's still in the same vein, still teaching them. This is all about learning, having them learn things from him. And now he's going to put them to the test. How many have found themselves in the middle of a test once you hear and learn about something that's a great truth? You hear something in a sermon or read something that touches you in the Bible, then all of a sudden you're put into a situation where you actually have to implement what you just learned. There's a sermon about not letting the sun go down in your anger. Or in your anger, sin not. And guess what happens? Somebody gets on your last nerve and makes you angry. How do you deal with that? Are you able to put into practice what someone taught you or you heard in a sermon or you read in the Bible? That's what Jesus is going to do to these guys right now. Mark 4.36 says, Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Now, I like the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, he was already in the boat, so they started out leaving the crowds behind. 
although other boats followed. It doesn't give any detail about the other boats or what happened to them. Maybe they sank, maybe they, but they were witnesses to what happened. We don't know what happened to the other boats. My guess is they probably sank because that's what the disciples thought was going to happen to them. Verse 37 says, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. One commentary says it this way, The geographic location of the Sea of Galilee makes it particularly susceptible to violent, sudden violent storms. When storms came in the evening or early, mor early morning, they were all the more treacherous. This region is notorious for these sudden storms. So when they left the shore, do you think Jesus knew there was going to be a storm? Of course. That's part of the test. That's why he was sleeping. He knew what they were going to do and, what they, and when, he was, when they were going to do it. Verse 438 says, He was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. As expected, the disciples freaked out. Verse 38, the disciples woke him and said, Jesus, or teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Now, these guys are experienced fishermen for the most part. I'm sure they've been in storms before. So they really shouldn't have been that worried or that concerned about it. But this storm, for them, must have been so bad and so much more than they've ever experienced to be afraid. Now, when they came to Jesus to wake him up, teacher, don't you care if we drown? That's kind of rude, don't you think? He'd been teaching them all along who he was, what the kingdom of God was like, explaining his parables to them, and now, Jesus, don't you care? Think about going to the dentist. How many like the dentist? The dentist starts scraping your teeth. Gums start to bleed. Hurts. And they give you a shot of Novocaine to numb you up. And then you tell the dentist, hey, don't you care about me? This hurts. No. It hurts because he cares. He's trying to help you. And Jesus is trying to teach his guys some truth. Verse 39 says, When he woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the water, Quiet down. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And he asked them, Why are you so afraid? Do you not still have faith in me? So the God of the universe spoke and the creation responded. Storm ended instantly. He calmed the storm and he turned to them and asked them why they were afraid. We sang that last song, no longer a slave to fear. How many things in our life that we face daily or weekly cause us to have fear? It's probably more than we think. You get a phone call in the middle of the night, it's usually never good. You come, become fearful. You get some bad news in the mail, you become fearful. The song we sang, we're no longer a slave to that fear. And the more you trust Christ, the less that fear is going to come. It just automatically dies down. The things you were afraid of when you were five, you're no longer afraid of. Why? Because over time, you lose that, that fear. Because you understand. And if you wake up at night, and you see your coat hanging over your chair, and you think it's a monster... 
until the light turns on, right? Well, you do that when you're five. Hopefully you don't do that when you're 35. But if you do, what I'm saying is you, the fear you have goes away because you realize what it really is. You no longer have the fear because you know that's a coat sitting on that chair. Or you know that's a towel that I hung over the door. You know it even though you don't see it. It's still dark, it still looks like a monster, but you know what it is because you're older and you're wiser. The more you know God, the more you have less fear because you know God's in control. You know God's got this. Now these guys shouldn't have been afraid of, for three different reasons. The first one was Jesus said they were going to make it to the other side. Verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. They should have trusted the promise that they're going to make it to the other side. He didn't say it was going to be an easy trip, but he said he's going to make it. How many promises has God given us that we kind of forget? The Bible says, never will, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How often do we think that God forgot us? Because things may not be going the way we thought. The Bible doesn't promise us a, a trouble-free life but he does promise to get us through that trouble-free life. Second thing is Jesus was physically with them. They'd already seen, seen him perform amazing miracles. They should have trusted him that this would be no different. How many have experienced God's blessing, God's provision, God's answer to prayer in the past? And the next time something bad comes up, you forget all about that stuff. You forget every time that God's ministered to you. You forget every time God answered prayer, and now you're worried about this. You should remember all the times that God has answered prayer and has done things for you to give you a lack of fear that God's not going to do it this time. If he did it all those other times before, he's going to do it again. The Bible says, I'm the Lord, I change not. He's not going to change. They didn't understand that Jesus is sovereign in every situation and nothing can stop what he promises to do. What did God promise you? Well, he's going to do it. It may not be when you think it's going to be or may, when you want it to be, but it's going to happen. And the third reason is Jesus was perfectly calm. His calm should have encouraged the other guys to remain calm. Well, if God's got it, why should I worry? When your kids get worried about something, but they see you being calm about it, that usually calms them down. Your calmness allows them to not be worried. Dad's got this. I'm not worried. However, if they see you nervous, they're going to get nervous. When we realize that God's right with us, and he's always calm. We shouldn't be worried. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, I will lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, and you keep me safe. God's in control. God's got it. And lastly, verse 41 says, and they were, and they were filled with awe and said among themselves, Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? Probably a rhetorical question. I think they kind of knew. They realized that he was the son of God. Guess what? 
test is over. They got it. Put your pencil down. Let me close with this. Now see, I, I didn't change the clock earlier. So it would have been another hour before noon. I would have kept you another hour. But they made me change the clock and let you out on time. Let me close with this. Just because you hit a storm doesn't mean you're out of God's will or God's punishing you. The disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. God said, do it, and yet they hit trouble. Maybe you're hitting the wall with storms and you're hitting the wall with hardships, man. It's just one thing after another. Their boat was getting swamped, getting going, going to go down. That doesn't necessarily mean you're sinning or out of God's will. What these things do is to help you see who God really is and to allow you to trust in his promises as he comes through. He puts you to the test. The only way to build faith and trust is by putting your faith to the test. There's a quote that says, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Your faith is going to be tested. God wants to see how strong your faith is. More importantly, God wants you to see how strong your faith is. No matter what you're going through right now, the Bible says, yes, Jesus does care about you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Not only does he care about you, he is with you. Hebrews 13, 5. Because God has said, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. And yes, Jesus is being calm about your situation. Isaiah 41, 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back on the platform for a moment. There's a song that we're going to sing as we close. The song is called Me on Your Mind. Listen to the lyrics of the song. I love these lyrics. A lot of times we think that, you know, God cares about the world and that's true. And God loves the world and that's true. But I heard someone say the other day, I knew that God loved me. I mean, God loves everybody, right? But what really hit me home was when I realized that God likes me. We can love a lot of people that we don't know in a generic sense. But do you really like that person? Jesus likes you. That was like a revelation to this guy. And sometimes when I hear that at first, it's like, that's awesome. Sometimes you love people. You may not love what they do. You may not, you know, you love your, your extended family, but you don't want to hang around them too much, right? Well, if you hang around them, it's because you like them. You like being with them. You like spending time with them. You can love someone and not spend time with them. We said something, you've, all heard, the, you've heard the expression, how do you spell love? T-I-M-E. The song talks about 
when Jesus did great things, when God did great things in the world, he was basically thinking about you when he did them. Lord bless you if you sing that song.
The Bible says every one of us was at odds with God. That our sin in our life kept us from Jesus. The sin in our life kept us from having a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Bible says all have sinned. Every one of us. And we all fall short of God's expectation of what He requires of people. And what He requires is perfection. And the Bible says the wages of those sins that we commit is death, and that's the separation from God for eternity. But the Bible says that the gift of God is the forgiveness of sins and life through what Jesus did for us. We no longer have to be perfect. We no longer have to follow a set of rules. We no longer have to do a bunch of things. The Bible says that Jesus did all that for us. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin and your sin. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to fear that we're not good enough because we're not. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Jesus paid the debt. Jesus gave us that option of eternal life. The only thing that he requires is that we believe it. Bible says it's the gift of salvation. And the same analogy I've used before still stands. If I have a gift and it's wrapped up and has your name on it, you, you can believe that gift is here. You can acknowledge it and say, yes, that must be for me. But if you don't come up and take it from me, that gift does you no good. It doesn't apply to your life. The Bible says that's what you have to do with Jesus. God offers the gift. Our job is to receive it. The Bible says as many as receive him, did he give the authority or the power, the right to be called children of God. Jesus has his hand extended right now said here's the gift please please take it I want you in my family I want your sins forgiven I want you to have a right relationship with our dad but the Bible says we have to make that choice Revelation says I stand at the door of your heart and knock Jesus if he opens the door I will come in to his life, fellowship with him. If you're here this morning, you've never really accepted Christ. You've never really acknowledged that you're a sinful person and that you want to accept Christ's payment for your sins. The Bible says you do that, your slate's wiped clean. You're clean before God. one of my favorite verses Bible Jesus says you didn't pick me I picked you 
because God saw in you something that is valuable, something that He wants. He picked you, but you have to say yes. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now because the Bible says God's knocking on the heart of your, your door of your heart. Maybe you're here and you've been away from the Lord for quite a while. You had a relationship at some point, but as we studied, the cares of this life kind of got in the way. And you know you need to come back. Well, the Bible says that's today. That's today. You do that today. The apostles asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? And Jesus says, 70 times 7, which is just basically an idiom for as many times as it takes. And that's the way God is. You may have failed at the same sin over and over and over and over again and ask for forgiveness over and over and over again. There never comes a point where you can't come one more time and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to repent of these sins. Help me to stop doing them. God will give you the strength to do that. And God never comes to a point where he says, okay, I've, I've done it enough. Quit asking me. There's always one more time for God to let you make it right. So if that's you, just ask. Lord, forgive me one more time. The Bible says he'll do it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible says. And he'll set you on the path again because he wants you to finish well. Father, we thank you this morning that you're a God who loves us, cares about us, has a perfect plan for our life. And the amazing thing, Lord, is you have a perfect plan with our imperfect lives. And you still use us in spite of us. So, Father, Lord, I pray for each person here this morning that you would fill them with your spirit. Allow them to really understand in their spirit that you love them and you care for them and you really do have a, a plan mapped out for them. And help them to want, want to follow that plan. Help them to trust you in every storm that you send their way. Help their faith to grow deep into the soil of your word. So whenever tr troubles and trials come our way the word of God holds us firm it will not let us stray it will not let us doubt or fear or worry but God you have us anchored to the rock of your truth so Lord I commit each person to you use them bless them meet their needs allow them to see tangible things in their life that helps to build their faith and we will thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus name and everyone said, amen. God bless you. See you Wednesday night for Bible study.
next Sunday for what God's doing.